Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial free versions of past episodes. Podcasts blast from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. And today, folks, we are rewinding back just a, a, like a hair under three years. Like, this was from June 28th, 2016. And this episode was originally 1817, Eating Like a King on a Below Average Income. This was another one that... I kind of crowdsourced off of the Zello guys. A lot of folks said they really, really had a good time listening to this show, and it gave them a lot of ideas. And a lot of people have told me over the three years since we did this that they've implemented a lot of things in this show, and they went from being the person that could barely make a box of macaroni and cheese that was complete garbage to people that not only cook really great food but enjoy doing it. And this is... You know, one of my passions is cooking. My buddy David was over the house a couple of weeks ago to hang out with me. Him and his wife came to hang out with Dorothy and I. And uh, we were talking about the Internet and business and stuff like that. And uh, one way or another it came up, you know, like, well, even if I wasn't doing the podcast, I would be uh, using the Internet in some sort of business today. And he said, you'd be doing something with cooking. And we both agreed that he was right, that this would probably be, if I was going to go out and build a a content-based business on something other than survival and preparedness and things like that. I'd go all in on cooking because it's so universal. And when I first started this show, I, I talked a lot about gardening and planting things and growing things. And, and it was like all of the hardcore prepper types I found the show were fine with that. But when I would start talking about ways to cook everything... All of a sudden, they're like, what are you going to do? Teach me how to make a cake next or a pie? And I'm like, well, I might. I mean, what good is producing your own food if all you can do is sit there and stare at it or turn it into mush and eat it like it's oatmeal? Shouldn't you enjoy your life if times get tough or even if they don't? This show helps you do that. And there's a lot of stuff that's really, really elevated in here, but there's also a lot of stuff that comes from the time in my life that I was broke. I mean, when I first moved to Texas, this is what I got out of the army, and I was getting a couple hundred bucks in unemployment a week. What even a couple? It was like a hundred and sixty dollars or something like that, hundred forty bucks, something like that. And um, you know, I got down here to Texas, and I was kind of getting to the end of my employment, and needed to take a job. And I ended up taking a job making five dollars and ninety cents an hour, packing boxes in a warehouse. That was my first job when I moved to Texas. Um, And I, I got by, and I didn't really live like a guy making six bucks an hour. I, I, I felt like I lived pretty good. I had good friends, and we hung out on weekends, and I probably spent more money in bars than I should. But one of the reasons I was able to is, you know, one, as smart as a young person, instead of trying to have my own place, I had a roommate. We split the cost of the apartment. But the other side of it was that I ate really well for almost no money. I mean, back then, you gave me a freaking chicken, just a cheap old chicken, and I'd make three meals and a bowl of soup out of it. Actually, three meals and a pot of soup out of it. And I can still do that today. I just kind of do it at a higher level. And it's, I think that a lot of it comes from growing up with grandparents that lived through the Great Depression and World War II. My one grandmother was a fantastic cook. 
everything she touched was amazing. She was my Italian grandmother. My Ukrainian grandmother did some things really well. She was a baker, a dessert maker, and she did some things that on the meat side fairly well. She made an incredible chicken pot pie and some things like that. She made a thing called machanka, which was a Ukrainian cheese soup that just eyes rolled back your head, but it wasn't real hard to do. But, I mean, she was the woman that destroyed meat. I mean, what she did to a steak could just make you cry. What she did to a roast beef. I, I grew up as a kid, I thought a beef roast and a roast beef were two different things. Until my dad explained it to me. And he said, why do you think they're different? I said, like, Grandma Moira, she makes she makes roast beef and it's all pink in the middle and it's juicy and it's so delicious. And, and Grandma Spirko makes a beef roast, because that's what she called it. And I thought they were different. He's like, what do you think's different? I said, it's like beef jerky. You put gravy on it, and it sucks the gravy up. It's so dry. He said, she just cooks it too long. And I said, why does she do it? And he goes, no one's willing to tell her she's wrong. It's okay, whatever. And But, you know, I did learn a lot from both of them about what to do and what not to do. But what I understood most importantly from both of them is it was control. That it was control over your life. It was a refusal to let the fact that you weren't super well off financially prevent you from eating well. And how creative could you be? And what my grandmother Spirko really taught me how to do, in spite of the fact that she destroyed meat, was how to use the bounty of the garden. This was the lady that, you know, everything that came out of that garden got either uh, flash frozen and blanched and frozen or it got uh, canned, whether directly or into something like uh, a chow chow relish or something like that. And, and both of those women instilled in me the idea that what, how well I lived as far as my ability to eat well was more about me than how much money I had. And that's what got channeled into this show that you're about to hear from three years ago. Again, since I was that little kid, Thirty some odd years have passed, and uh, with the internet and with meeting really cool people like my former uh, business partner Neil Franklin that shared my passion for cooking, and great cooking shows with people like Alton Brown and Guy Fieri and Bobby Flay, I've added tons of different things. And then what I did is try to go back to being that poor ass kid, and take all of these ways of elevating your food and bringing it together. And since I originally did this episode, I came across a YouTube channel I just want to throw out. I've talked about them before. Brothers Green Eats, man. If you want to take what I'm going to show you today and take it to another level, check out their channel. Another guy you can check out is Alex the French Guy. He's a pretty cool dude too, man. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and rewind back. June 28, 2016, originally episode 1817, Eating Like a King on a Below Average Income. Uh, so I want to start out with like my overriding viewpoint of of cooking, period, and specifically a little bit on cooking to stretch money. Okay, so it, really they're not different, but you kind of just focus on certain things. So, for instance, if I wanted to cook something and I wanted to keep the cost down, well, I'm not going to go out and buy an entire beef tenderloin and make some amazing, you know. Asian tenderloin roast, which I know how to make. I'm not going to tell you today because you're not going to do that on the cheap. It's not going to happen because the meat alone would be like a hundred bucks. But the overriding philosophy is the technique. And there's just certain things that if we do them, we end up with quality in our food. The first and foremost is fresh ingredients. The second is creativity. 
We, we need to be creative. We don't need to always be looking up somebody else's recipe or relying on somebody else's recipe and understanding flavor combinations. Yeah, I mean, if we just understand we have, we have you know, salty, we have sweet, we have bitter, we have sour, and we have spice. And we could always do worse than to simply make sure each one of those is included in a dish. Because that sets up all the firing of the, of the uh, taste buds in, in, in random sequences. Like, and that's what, when you, when you have really great food, and this is why so many people like Asian foods, especially not Chinese buffet, you know, soaked, fried, chicken nugget, orange juice crap, but actually well made, you know, stuff you get at an expensive per plate restaurant. And because it has that, and because, again, one of the rules I gave you, we don't cook shit in water unless we're supposed to be cooking it in water, unless we're supposed to be boiling it. We keep the liquid down. We use small amounts. We spread it. We use things to bind up liquid, like chili powder is a great example. If we do that, then we get wonderful things. Because if you think about it and you go out to like a nice Thai restaurant, you might get a plate of food that's like an $18 plate. It's beautiful. It tastes wonderful. But if you started adding up the ingredients on there, there's 2 $3 worth of ingredients on there at the most. It's the technique that makes that dish worth 18 bucks to you, you know, if it, if it hits. And, I mean, there's certain things that you can't do cheap. One of our guilty pleasures, and we only go about twice a year, is a place called Lonesome Dove in Fort Worth. Tim Love's restaurant. It's amazing. And the thing I usually get there is an elk tenderloin. Now, unless you shot your own elk, you're already out, right, as far as keeping that cost down. But basically what that makes that elk loin wonderful is it's rolled in a great spice rub, and it's, it's basically uh, seared and then oven-cooked and left rare. You can do that with any piece of beef. You can do that with any piece of beef. It doesn't have to be a tenderloin. Uh, you could do that with a, with a, with a piece of uh, ribeye. You could do that with a, a piece of sirloin. And if you get the right meat and you treat it the right way, it'll come out wonderful. It won't be the same. It won't have candied crepes with it and, you know, mataki mushrooms and the stuff that Tim throws down. But we can make a meal similar to that if we follow the same techniques. So it starts out with techniques. I want to talk a little bit about the tools of the trade, specifically pots and pans. My go-to pans for cooking in is cast iron. I want to be clear. It's not the only thing I use. I also use stainless steel and I use no stick. I don't use no stick a lot, but I use it at times. If I'm making an ass load of eggs for like 10 people, and I'm just going to make scrambled eggs with like peppers and tomatoes and sausage and, and bacon scramble, like a big egg scramble, and I'm cooking for like five, six people, then I pull out my big, giant, you know, nonstick skillet because it's easy. If I'm making the same thing for myself with two to three eggs, I pull out my cast iron skillet. And the number one way I can tell you to save money on your cookware is to, to, to make your go-to cooking cookware cast iron. Use old cast iron. I'm talking 60, 70 years old. Go to flea markets, go to antique malls, whatever, and find and refurbish your own. You can't buy anything like that today. Paul Wheaton has a great article on restoring cast iron. I'll put a link in today's show notes when I backfill them. It probably won't be rate. It'll be like tomorrow maybe before I get all these links in because of today, the way it's running, okay? But... 
you can you can read that article, but here's what I've learned. If you go to these antique malls and stuff, and you spend enough time looking around, you will find some cast iron that's sitting there that might look a little bit kind of dirty or whatever, but it doesn't need to be fully stripped. It was somebody's, you know, grandma's that got cleaned out in an estate sale, and it's just kind of laid around and not been taken care of. Maybe it wasn't cleaned up before it went out, and it's got some sticky goo on it. But the patina is beautiful on it. And I've been able to find multiples uh, like that in, in, in various antique malls. In fact, almost every time I've searched, I've found at least one. And you rehab that, you cook with it, and I don't believe anything else cooks as good as far as cooking on a stovetop. Pots, I, pots I use mostly stainless steel. I do have some cast iron Dutch ovens for certain things, but when I'm, you know, boiling, making soups, whatever, either a big stainless steel or aluminum pot. <gasps> aluminum. We're all going to die of aluminum cancer. Okay. This is my rule with aluminum. If it's a tomato-based thing or high-acid thing, I don't cook in aluminum, and that's probably an overreaction. I cook that stuff in stainless steel uh, or a Dutch oven, an enamel Dutch oven. Everything else, if I'm making chicken soup or whatever, I'll totally make that in an aluminum pan. I'm not worried about that. If you're worried about that, worry about the 60,000 toxins you inhale every time you breathe. The amount of aluminum you get from something like that is, is inconsequential. Um, so... Those are kind of my rules for my cookware. I believe in metal spatulas for everything except nonstick. Okay? Because you don't use a metal spatula on a nonstick pan. For nonstick pans, instead of using that plastic crap, I use a nice thin wooden spatula. I think that works better. And it does a good job, and so that's, that's what I use. I'm a big believer in tongs. Um, for all my chopping and cutting and everything, I use wooden cutting boards. I do not freak out. I'm not a germaphobe. I understand biology and I know how it works. When I cut something on a cutting board that's like raw meat or something, before I do anything else with it, I take it to the sink. I wash it with a, a stiff sponge and soapy hot water. I dry it off and then I'll throw my carrots right the hell on there and I'm not worried about it. And if you are worried about this, Google wooden cutting board contamination myth and read the science as to why this is not a problem the people that are sitting there with like five different color coded plastic cutting boards you know I love Alton Brown I'll tell you my favorite TV cooks right now and guys I think you should watch Alton Brown Bobby Flay Guy Fieri there's a lot of other people I like uh, Luke Luke Nguyen uh, Judy Ju she does uh, was it Korean food made simple Uh, there's a lot of other people like, but the, the three guys that really I've learned a lot from, again, are Fietti, uh, Alton Brown, and uh, Bobby Flay. Bobby Flay I've kind of waned on because it's kind of the same thing over and over and over and over again. But, uh, but Alton Brown, man, if you want to learn about the science of cooking, great guy. And, of course, Chef Keith Snow's podcast is a great thing in his YouTube videos as well. Um, but... Alton Brown is like like this paranoid germaphobe, like we have one set of tongs to put the food on the grill and a totally different set to take them off the grill. And it, Okay, look, you know how I put my steaks on the grill, my chicken on the grill? With my hands. With my hands. And then I go wash my hands. That's how. And then I turn it with the tongs. And once it's been turned and it's, it's started to sear on both sides and it's been exposed to heat on both sides, I take the tongs into the kitchen and I wash them. And then I use them for the rest of the thing, and I don't worry about it. If that was dangerous, I'd be dead. 
because I've been doing it that way for 20 years. So like I don't overstress this 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 freak out world. I mean, if I look at the way my grandmother cooked, holy god, the whole family would have died. If you believe everything that you hear. Wash, yes, that's the big thing. Is wash things, clean things, dry things. That's it. There is some stuff that I'll talk about today with keeping safe with botulism when making infused oils. Really simple, you don't have to worry about it. So the thing to me that makes food amazing is spices and seasonings, marinades, base sauces, and techniques. It's not the food itself. Because I can take a piece of chicken, a thigh with skin on, for instance, and I can throw that on the grill and I can grill that, and I can put no salt, no pepper, no seasonings, no spices, no nothing on it, and it'll be okay, but it'll be kind of boring. If I do something as simple as the following, I take some black pepper, some sea salt, some lemon zest, and some parsley. And I either put that in a spice grinder like the Amazon item I put out as the item of the day today, a little coffee grinder, and, and, and pulse that up. Or another thing I can do with that is put it in a mortar and pestle and, and make that kind of like a paste. Because the parsley, if I use fresh parsley, especially in the citrus, will kind of come out and they'll bind up the salt and the pepper. And just because I like real flavor, I throw a little granulated or fresh garlic in with that, minced garlic, and I do that. And then I take and I push my finger up underneath the skin instead of on the skin. And I push that stuff inside between the skin and the thigh meat and kind of pull it back down, maybe pop a couple wet toothpicks in it if it, if it needs it because the thigh will kind of let go a lot more than a whole chicken. And then I just across the top of the skin do a light coating of salt, pepper, and paprika and just grill that one the same way. Which one do you want to eat? Okay, it's still a chicken thigh. If I buy, you know, standard grocery store chicken, and I would say I'd like to step up to, you know, your own or, or pasture poultry or whatever, but if you don't have money, I would rather you eat chicken from the store than starve. It's still what? A 70 cent piece of chicken? All of the stuff I just talked about doing to it added what to it? A diamond cost, if that? The, the citrus zest is from a lime? let's say, or a lemon, lemon's better for this, that you were going to make lemonade with and throw the rind away, it's a scrap. We've reused it. We've repurposed it. Right? So spicing, spices and seasonings are in the technique. Instead of putting it on the skin so it all burns off, the skin is designed to do what in a chicken? To keep water and disease and pestilence and everything else from getting inside the chicken. It's a case. So if we put it under the skin, and then we flavor the skin with something like salt, pepper, garlic, paprika, just a little dusting of it, then we get something that has this amazing flavor. We get the skin to crisp up, but we get the flavors baked into the meat and held against the meat. And then if we make a, a little baste for it, right, we just do something really simple. We get a little bit of water, a couple ounces of water. We get um, a, a couple tablespoons of brown sugar. We melt up about a tablespoon of butter. Uh, we put a little bit of some sort of infused oil. Let's say a pepper-infused oil. We put, we're talking about teaspoons, tablespoons of stuff here. Small amount. We don't need much. We put that all into some, some little bowl or cup to mix it up. And we put one little squirt of mustard in there because it's an emulsifier. It will let the the different ingredients bind together instead of the oil separating off. We give it a good mix, 
You've got a sugar in there that'll caramelize. And when that chicken is really done, we have it over high heat. We brush it with that glaze. We flip it over just until it starts to barely char, right? It just starts to blacken just a little bit. We, we, we base the, the other side, the flat side, put it back on there, give it a few seconds. We pull it off the heat, give it another little quick baste, put the lid down on the grill. We could do this in a pan too. And we just give it a couple, you know, maybe 30 seconds like that. We're not letting it cook. What we're actually doing is we're letting the glaze dry a little bit. But we're doing it with indirect heat so it won't burn. We pull that off. Now, which one do you want to eat? The chicken? Okay, and I'll tell you what. The chicken thigh that I just throw on the grill, I'll put some salt and pepper on it and throw it on the grill for you. Which one do you want to eat? What's the difference in cost? There's almost, so it's all about the spices, the seasonings, and techniques. So with spices and seasoning, here's, here's my rules. And this rule I have for like everything. Buy whole. Spices, buy like whole seeds of your spices or, you know, don't buy ground spices or ground seasonings. Buy whole because you can always use them whole or grind them. So the little coffee grinder I put out there, they're like 17 bucks on Amazon. They're, they're perfect for it. I've ground a lot more pepper for make pepper powder and onions and garlic and spices in that thing than I've ever ground any coffee in it. I mean, I've ground some, but not much. All right. So buy whole spices and buy in bulk. Again, it's pretty universal too. If you can get bulk, you know, bulk items and you have the ability to store them and you have the money to buy them, of course, I understand this, then you drive the overall cost down and then make your own mixes as needed. Now, I do use Chef Keith's seasonings like a lot because they're convenient and they work well and they're beautifully done and they're top quality ingredients. And that doesn't mean I don't still make up my own. But I'm going to tell you right now, if I was, you know, worried about putting food on my table for a month, like, will I have enough money to eat decent or have my family eat decent this month? I'm not going to go buy pre-made spices, no matter how good they are. I mean, another analogy with that is, you know what? I think Ferraris are badass. I think Ferraris are the most amazing automobiles ever built. I would love love to own a Ferrari. It's it's not financially responsible for me to buy a Ferrari. Does that make sense? I mean, that's how you have to look at your food. There's things that are better quality, cost more, easier, more convenient, and as you go up in income level, you choose, you pick and choose from those things, and nobody can have everything except the uber wealthy, super rich. And that's not what I'm designing this show today for. So, when you learn to make your own, you find that a lot of things are really simple. Like if you wanted to make lamb, you don't need to go find somebody's lamb seasoning. Okay, Thyme, rosemary, salt, kosher rissi, coarse black peppercorns, a pinch of granulated garlic, and a pinch of dried onions, and pulse that in a grinder. Uh, the, the, the thyme, the rosemary, the salt, the pepper, all of those about a teaspoon, right? Or depending on how much you're making, but about equal amounts. Post that in the grinder, dust your lamb with that, grill that. You want to like gild the lily with it? Okay, get, get some mint. Okay, get some mint and get a good quality olive oil. 
get you want to use dried mint for this. I'll talk about infusing oils later, and infuse a mint infused olive oil. All right, and brush it with that oil at the end, and kind of just crisp the outside of the lamb chops with that. Simple. Now, do you, do you make enough lamb chops to warrant having a jar that says lamb seasoning on it? And I could make a different lamb. I could make a lamb curry. Put a little cumin in there, a little turmeric in there, more garlic, more onion, salt, pepper, a little of a dried chili pepper. You see what I'm saying? Like if you if you start understanding this type of concept, then you don't go out and buy like you know chicken seasoning. <laughs> well, let's see. Here's here's a challenge for you. Go out. To a grocery store. Next time you're in a grocery store, pick up a random thing that says chicken seasoning and see if it doesn't say the following. Salt, pepper, onion, garlic, paprika. Maybe some other stuff, but that's what it's going to be. It's going to be the base of it. Do you have salt and pepper at home? Do you have onion garlic? Do you have paprika? Okay, you have chicken seasoning. You want to move it toward the Italian? Throw some oregano and thyme in it. You want to move it toward the Asian, right? Put a little Thai chili pepper with that, a little just dried chai chilies. Perk it up a little bit, throw a little ginger with it. You're moving it toward the Asian. See, when you start to figure this out, you don't go out and buy pre-made mixes and stuff. Most of that stuff in the stores is crap. It's cheap, but it's garbage. It may taste good, but it mostly is sugar and salt. And they've, they've, they've just done some chemical tricks with it to make it bind certain ways so that it doesn't go soupy on you or whatever. And they give you precise instructions. Use this much water, this much oil, this much butter, whatever. Okay. Oh, by the way, while we're at it, margarine is not butter. Margarine is not food for humans. Margarine is evil. Margarine does not belong in your house. I'll leave it there. All right. Uh, moving on. I think one of the best things you can learn to become really good at producing a lot of food cheap for yourself and to make use of things that, that you know are leftovers or pieces, parts, and that, that follows the concept of always buy whole, not just your spices, but your, your chicken, your fish, you know, whatever. When you buy steak, we do buy a lot of pre-cut steaks because it's so expensive, but it really makes a lot of sense to do something like go down, if you're going to buy factory meat, go down to somewhere like Costco and buy like a whole bone-in uh, ribeye, bone and all. Take it home, bone it. Look what you got there. Look at the bones. Now, if you could either cut it with the bones and cook the steaks bone on, I love to do that. But if you wanted to make bone stock, you just got premium stuff to work with there. You toss that thing into the oven and you, you, you bake the bones and then you cut them up and you make bone stock. So stocks and soups, and there's really three options with stocks and soups and broths, and that is homemade from concentrate and canned or box. That's actually the order that I prefer them in because of one thing. It's called better than bullion. That's why from concentrates ranks higher than canned or box. But I want to talk about homemade first because this is the number one way to stretch your dollars. Making stocks is as simple as having some sort, and it doesn't even have to, it can be just all vegetables. You can do vegetable stocks, obviously, but I like to make meat stocks. So some protein source with bones and something that has gelatin, collagen, connective tissue in it. 
some vegetables, salt and water, and then simmering that. Now, there's other things, like, you know, certain things, really, it works out better. If you had a whole bunch of raw chicken bones that you came into, like, let's say you found a pasture producer who was doing parts that would sell you the frames, you know, everything that's left after you part out a chicken, uh, you know, the boneless breasts and what have you, uh, would sell you the frames cheap. You would you would make a much better stock if you put that all in a big pile, threw it in the oven for 30 minutes at like 375 and browned it before you made stock out of it. Some things you want to do with that, some things like fish stocks, you you, you really don't need to. So let's, let's take an example here. Most people that are trying to eat inexpensively don't generally eat a lot of fish, especially, you know, outside of like fish sticks and stuff like that, like fish that you get from the grocery store or the, the mart or the fish market where you go in and they have a fish laying there and you say, I want two fillets of this and lobster tail and it's, it's, it gets expensive. But many places, you know, you can buy whole fish. Fins, tail, all it is is gutted. That's what you buy. So we, we buy a whole fish, we pay less per pound that way, significantly less. And we're going to come home and we're going to fillet the fish. So I can't explain how to fillet a fish on the radio. I just can't. But we're going to learn how to fillet a fish. We fillet that fish, and if we're going to cook that fish with a skinless fillet, we skin that fillet. Now we have our bones, head, tail, and skin. Guess what you make fish stock out of? Bones, head, tail, and skin. So we could do something as simple as that. Another thing they see a lot in the grocery stores, farm-raised catfish. They have the fillets and all. Catfish is a great fish. But they're already skinned. But what you have is basically a whole catfish that's been skinned. And then you can fillet it, and then you have at least that bone core. So that if we were going to buy catfish, maybe we do that. So maybe one night we're going to eat, I don't know, sea bass, something like that. Something we're going to buy a whole fish, striped bass, something. Fish that you catch, right? You can go out and catch a... I'll talk about that in a second, right? When I, when I talk about poor man's bully base. So, but we're going to skin those fish. We're going to fillet and skin the fish. And we just take all of the bones, the head, everything. We throw it in a big, heavy-duty Ziploc bag. Maybe we double bag. We throw it in a freezer. And then the next time we're going to have fish, we go to, we're going to have catfish. Good old-fashioned fried catfish. Cornmeal, roll the catfish and cornmeal. Egg wash, cornmeal, deep fried. Done. That's all you got to do. Salt and pepper on when they come out. It's all you got to do. Cut it in small, thin pieces so it doesn't hold too much oil. Get the oil to the right temperature, 375 degrees, not a, not a, not a, not a, not a, a decimal less than that. And as soon as that fish floats and looks crispy, get it out of there and hit it with salt and pepper immediately. Look cayenne if you want it hot. That's it. All right. So we do that. We have our fried fish. Now we take those, you know, backbone basically pieces of the catfish because we paid less for our catfish and we got those. We throw those in that same bag. We keep building up that bag of fish parts until we get to a point where we look at it and go, that'll make a stock. We take it all. We put it into a pot. We cover it with water. We add salt and pepper and garlic. Good combination right there. And we simmer it. We simmer it till all the little pieces of fish coming off and all. And then we strain it. Now we have a fish stock. What do you do with it? You can make chowder, soups, and fish stews with it. That's awesome. Okay. Chicken. You get a chicken. You cook a whole chicken. You use as much of it as you can. You've got the, basically the, the, the carcass, all the bones and stuff left behind. It was roasted, grilled, whatever. Maybe you do chicken this way. You, you cook chicken thighs, like I said. 
Like you're still hungry from that, right? So you go and you make, you know, for a family of four, you make four chicken thighs like that. And those are your main dish. You take the bones and you put them in a bag. And then when you make wings, I'm going to tell you, you make awesome wings today, you take the bones, you put them in a bag. And so you end up with this big bag of chicken bones in the freezer. <laughs> you know what you do? You put it in a pot, right? Cover it with water. You go with your mirepoix now. You go with gar uh, sorry, uh, carrot, celery, and onion. Maybe a bay leaf, some parsley, and some garlic. We simmer that. We make a chicken stock. Right. So homemade stocks. And now we can make soup. We can use it as a flavor ingredient. Here you take, you make a chicken stock. Everybody thinks, okay, now you make soup. Now there's, hold on. There's other things we can do with this. We could can it. That's why I love electric canners. So we have our own chicken stock on the on the shelf. Big jars, little jars, whatever you want. Then we're going to say, let's have some pasta. By the way, I'm throwing paleo out for this because not everybody in this audience is paleo. And I'm inexpensive, and pasta's inexpensive. We'll make a dish right now. We use that chicken stock. We're going to make a pasta with chicken and arugula and tomatoes. Huh? Arugula's cheap. You can grow it almost perennial in your backyard. Amazing peppery bite. Tomatoes this time of year, you can have a, a couple pots of cherry tomatoes and basically produce cherry tomatoes for free. If you know a good friend who's a gardener, they can probably make cuttings for you of their own cherry tomatoes, and you can get the cuttings for next to nothing. So we take the cherry tomatoes, we cut them in either half or we dice them. We make up our pasta, salt water, boil, drain. We heat up our chicken stock in another pot. It's important for the way that we're going to do this. We heat up our chicken stock in another pot, and we get our pot that our noodles were in, and we have just chicken we've, we've sautéed with butter, garlic, onions, okay? We put the chicken back in. We get the, the, the so we get that just kind of just barely sizzling, but we get the chicken stock boiling, and we throw our arugula or any greens we want in there, and then we take the ladle, and we ladle the chicken stock over the arugula, and it wilts. Then we take the noodles, and we put them back in, and we toss them. And that makes, that stock becomes our sauce. If we want to thicken it a little bit at that point, maybe we hit it with some, some Parmesan cheese. Parmesan cheese does not come in a powder. Parmesan cheese is, is grated hard cheese. Yes, it costs a little more, but you don't need that much if you use the good stuff. It's salty. We hit that with salt and pepper, and we serve that. Fantastic. And the tomatoes, uh, I kind of missed it on the tomatoes. The tomatoes go in the pan with the chicken and the, and the arugula, but the chicken's cooked, and they're not. They're, they're raw when you put them in there. The only thing that hits the tomatoes and the greens is the hot stock. And then we toss that stock onto the noodles, and then we serve that. The tomatoes will have this amazing, popping, fruity flavor that sauce cakes. Everybody's sauce on all pastas. Okay, you want it to be paleo? Use spaghetti squash. Do the same thing. You want it to be pseudo-paleo? Mix half spaghetti squash and half pasta. You don't have to be a purist all the time, right? So that's why I love stocks, because we can do all that stuff. Now, from Concentrate. A lot of times when I'm making a stock, I'll extend it. So I have enough stuff to make, let's say, a, uh, a quart of stock, and I want two quarts. Well, I'll use this product called Better Than Bullion. And they have everything. They have ch chicken, beef, vegetable. They also have shrimp. They have fish. 
They have ham. They have tons of varieties. Now, usually at your grocery store, you'll find chicken, beef, and vegetable in this product. Better than bullion. It comes in a jar. Once it's open, you have to keep it in the refrigerator. Before it's open, it's just shelf-stable. At Costco, they have great big jars of organic chicken base in Better Than Bullion, and it's dirt cheap. I don't remember how much it is, but it's less than the little jars at the grocery store. They have a lot of these products in organic options as well, if that's important to you. Even though they're a little more expensive, the cost overall is very inexpensive because a teaspoon makes a cup of stock or, or broth. So a lot of times I'll stretch my... Um, my, my stocks with products like Better Than Bullion, the concentrate. My last choice is Canon box stocks. You know, and there's some good ones. Emerald, Emerald Lagasse, whatever his name is, the BAM guy. He has an organic chicken stock that's very affordable. It's in a lot of the stores. That's a good thing. There's a lot. If you go down to Costco, Costco again is my go-to for organic products in bulk. I mean, it, they're worth the membership fee for what you save compared to a grocery store. They really are. Um, But they're kind of my last choice. They're convenient. They're there. They're available. And until the product called Better Than Bullion, until I, I found that, um, I, I always preferred it the opposite. So I went homemade, canned, boxed, you know, stuff, and then the concentrates. I've never found a concentrate I like as much as Better Than Bullion. I've tried quite a few. If anybody has any suggestions, I'll try anything once. Uh, but those are great. And then you have this ability to just instantly do things, right? Um, another thing you can do that's really simple is you can get, they make these things, they're like a, like a rubber, like a silicone rubber, and they're basically made for making muffins. And so they, they go in the oven. You get one of those, when you make your stock of, instead of canning it, you ladle it into one of these things on a hard tray so that it doesn't flop all around on you and spill, and you stick that in your freezer, and you make big, giant stock ice cubes. And then once they're frozen solid, you pop them out, throw them in Ziploc bags. You can pull out you know, as much as you want. That's another way. And that way, this is what I'm trying to get across to you. Save everything you can make stock from and make lots of stock. Because it brings so much flavor and body to all your different foods. It's the base of sauces. It's the base of soups. It's, you know, it, it's the base of just basically flavorings. It's just fantastic. And I'm talking about, so when I say buy whole... When you go to the grocery store, don't buy celery that's pre-cut. Don't buy celery hearts. Buy a great big bunch of celery, whether it's organic or conventional. I don't care. Buy the biggest honking bunch of celery you can get. Usually that stuff, celery is usually not priced by the pound, by the way. It's priced by the bunch. So get the biggest bunch you can. Imagine if they did chickens like that. Chickens, $3. And there was a six-pound chicken and a three-pound chicken. Which one would you get? Right? So, you know. Pay attention. I'm not saying it's always that way, but I've seen a lot of times. Celery's just buy the bunch. Peppers, buy the pepper for the big, you know, sweet peppers and all. When you see that, buy the biggest stuff. So we bring that celery home, and the whole top of it looks kind of gnarly. We'll make stock out of it. If we're not going to do it in the next week or two, whack that off, throw it in a bag, throw it in the freezer. It will suck as celery. It won't suck as a stock base. And then you got a big old bulb on the bottom of it, a bunch of dirt on it and stuff. Just cut that off. Run that under your, you know, take real good care and, and scrub that. By the way, you can also plant that if you want to instead. But if you're going to cut it off, cut it off. Pull out your celery hearts, get the inside really sweet stuff. Trim the leaves off of them. Use that in your salads or whatever. And then the rest of it's your cooking celery and your celery sticks, right? But then you have that. 
if you buy carrots, buy the, if they have them, you buy the carrots with the green tops on them. When you cut the tops off, the, throw the whole thing in a bag. Use it for stock. What, whatever you buy, if there's leftovers, save it for stock. Build up enough veg to make stock and then make your stock. If you go to farmers markets and you see stuff that's like not quite peak anymore, but it's good quality, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's safe to eat. Talk to the people selling it. Ask them if they'll sell it for less. They're going to because otherwise in another day it's not going to sell at all. So then you take that home and you make a big pile of stock with it. In restaurants, this is what they do all the time. Celery root, carrot tops, you know, any vegetables, pieces you cut off, whatever, it all goes to stock. And then you use a protein base to go with it to get that gelatinous type of, you know, body. So really think about that. Oils, vinegars. I use a lot of products that are pre-infused. Um, there's some really great stuff from Olive Basket. We have a discount on that. Um, there's a, a brand, I can't remember what it's called right off the top of my head, but it's from Southern California. We brought home like five bottles of it. There's a blood orange we use. There's a, uh, a jalapeno and there's a garlic. They're great too. But again, if I was worried about feeding my family for the whole month financially, I wouldn't be buying stuff like that, but I could damn sure make it. For your infused olive oils, if you're going to cook with them, you don't need like premium extra virgin. You can just get olive oil or virgin olive oil. Or the other oil that I'll cook with is peanut oil. Some people don't like it. I'll tell you what, I prefer it. I prefer peanut oil to canola, to vegetable, to everything else, to corn oil. If I'm going to cook with an oil that's not olive oil or it's not an animal fat like lard uh, or maybe coconut oil is another good one, but if I'm going to do something like that, I'm going to use peanut oil. But olive oil and peanut oil are my two go-tos for infusions, oil infusions. Okay. This is the one place that you can get yourself into trouble is making oil infusions. Vinegar infusions, there's no risk because the acidity is going to take care of it for you. But you can take herbs, infuse olive oil, and store it, and you can end up with botulism. Because botulism grows in an oxygen-deprived environment, and being surrounded with oil is an oxygen-deprived environment. Keep that thought in mind here. So the next thing that botulism needs to reproduce, and understand it's not the botulism that gets you, it's the toxin that they produce as they reproduce, uh, is water. They need an oxygen-deprived environment. They need the presence of botulism spores, which is actually really common. It's all, all over the place. And they need water. If they have those three things in an oxygen-deprived environment, over time they can grow, reproduce, and make a toxin that can kill you dead. So if we infuse our oils using dried herbs, there's no water, certainly not enough water in the dried herbs or dried chilies or what have you to fuel the botulism, and therefore we get no botulism. The next thing to understand about botulism is boiling will not kill botulism. It won't do it. Um, we need a temperature of about 240 degrees. You might want to check that. That's off the top of my head. I'll check it myself because I don't want to give that number wrong. Glad I checked it. It's 248 degrees, 120 degrees Celsius to kill botulism. That's why when we can things that are low in acid like meats and stocks and all, we use pressure canning because by pressurizing the steam, we can get the steam and therefore the internal temperature of whatever we're working on up to a temperature of 248 degrees and hold it long enough to kill everything. So if 248 degrees kills botulism and drives off any toxins, 
then we know, we know good friends, the 250-260 degrees did a really good job of it. We can't heat water to that temperature, but we can damn sure heat oil to that temperature. And that's actually a low temperature for oil. So another option that we have to make sure we don't have to deal with botulism is making infused oils and using heat when we do that. If we do that, then we're going to kill off botulism if it's there. Now, I want to add a couple more things to this on botulism as a whole. Remember I said I'm not a superfood, you know, germaphobe, but botulism is one of the serious ones. So here's another thing you need to know. Boiling won't kill botulism, but botulism is not the problem. The toxin that it produces is the problem. If you have canned food and you're concerned at all about the potential for botulism and you take that canned food and put it in a pot and you boil it for five to ten minutes, you will, if there is any botulism present, you will boil it off the toxin. So I'm not saying to use bad canning practices. I'm just saying that it's a good practice to boil pressure canned items uh, when you use them for a little bit to be like your added insurance thing. But infused oils. Let me give you one of my favorite infused oils. This is so simple. We take into a quart jar um, a handful of red dried Thai chili peppers, and eventually I'll backfill this show with links so you can see where I get them. I get these ones right from Thailand. Um, they ship them from Thailand on Prime. You get like three ounces for like three bucks. I don't even understand how. And it comes like wrapped in Taiwanese, and sometimes there's a customs paper on it or something. I, I, I don't get it. How they can ship that to you in two days, but they do it, so fine. And so you take a big handful of those, you kind of crush them, and you throw them in a jar. I'm sorry, you throw them in a, not in a jar, you put them in a pan, uh, a saucepan. And then you take a big handful of black peppercorns, cherry peppercorns, like I talked about recently in the item of the day, it's the best. Big handful of black peppercorns. And then about four to five cloves of garlic or about a tablespoon to a tablespoon and a half of minced dried garlic will work as well. And we cover that with oil, either an olive oil, or actually for this one, I do like to use peanut oil for this. About, um, you know, somewhere between a pint and a quart, depending on how much you want to make, of peanut oil. And we put that on the, the stove, and we raise the temperature to about 250 degrees. That's high enough to kill botulism. I'm not trying to kill botulism here, though. I want to bring that, and you can do that with a thermometer, Or you can watch it, and when you, if you're worried about botulism using uh, like fresh herbs or something, you want to use heat here, then use a thermometer and go up to like 260, 270. With 250, you can watch that, and when it just looks like the barest notes that it's going to start frying around the peppercorns and the peppers and the garlic, don't let it fry. That's around 250 degrees. It'll be hot, but it won't be cooking. Shut the pot, shut the heat off, put the lid on the pot. Let it sit until it cools. Dump it into a blender, uh, Vitamix, what have you. Pulse it in the blender. Strain the oil through a sieve, a colander, basically, um, like a, uh, like just a, a strainer, just a metal strainer, into a jar, put the lid on it. Best practice would be to store that in the refrigerator. I use that for like, Chicken wings, you brush chicken wings with that. Oh, my God, that's amazing. Um, and that, those Thai chilies, they say they're hot, but when you do them that way, they don't seem that hot to me anyway. But, you know, you can adjust things. You can make jalapeno oil, and that's an easy thing. I buy large packages of jalapeno, dehydrated jalapenos. As many as I grow, um, just cooking with them, it's just easier. 
right? I still have a few jars left of my own, but I mean, after I dehydrated that many jalapenos one time, I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. It's too much work. But you can use your dehydrator if you want to. But dehydrated jalapenos, throw them in oil. Just throw them in oil. Let them infuse. Or do what I just said. Or replace jalapeno. Use the black pepper and the uh, the garlic and make the hat oil. Whatever you want to come up with. And you can do the same things with vinegars. When you're doing infused vinegars, again, the whole botulism discussion we just had, just forget about it. It's high acid. It's nothing to worry about. It's like, well, they make pickles with, with vinegar, right? You're, you're done, right? So you can make any of the types of things that we were talking about. And you can use herbs. Rosemary-infused oil is great. Rosemary-infused vinegar is great. Rosemary and thyme, all right? If it goes together on something uh, as a rub, it probably would go well as an oil. So remember I talked about rosemary and thyme being a great base for a rub for lamb chops? Well, instead of making a mint oil... Then it's called reinforcing flavors. It's where we bring the flavors back in other forms. So now we take rosemary and thyme. We make a rosemary and thyme infused olive oil. If we want to speed that up, maybe we do put that in a little saucepan and warm it to about 200, 250 degrees just for a little bit. And then we strain that off. And we can do it with whole sprig of thyme, whole sprig of rosemary fresh because we're going we're gonna to make it and we're going to use it. right? We're just going to cover enough olive oil on top of that, just enough to brush our lamb chops with. And then we're going to take it, we're going to brush our lamb chops with it, we're going to hit them with that rub on top of it, we're going to grill them, and then when we're done with it, we're going to, we're going to brush that oil, and this is where I do say, you got to use some food sanitation. If you brushed your, your olive oil on with a brush, that brush needs to be washed before you brush it onto a finished cooked product, because you've touched raw meat with it. Okay. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. We're supposed to be eating cheap today, Jack. Those lamb chops are expensive. Ah, good friend. Go to the grocery store and you see those expensive lamb chops. Look right next to them or right underneath them. And you'll usually see, it'll say something like arm chops or arm shoulder chops or something like that. Usually what they are is if you touch your bicep, a lot of times you'll get that piece of meat right there from the front leg. And they just cut, they look like little steaks. Or there'll be cuts off of the, the shoulder blade, more like a Boston butt pork thing where they, they make like country-style ribs out of it and they cut it, stuff like that. That is exceptionally good meat. In some ways, I think it's much better than chops in flavor. It is a little tougher, but we can handle that by buying, trying to find thick bits of it. And then we're going to do the salting procedure. So we take that low-quality cut of lamb, bone in. Huh? Save the bones when you're done eating, friends. We're going to cover it with salt on both sides. Probably going to have a hard time finding anything much thicker than a half inch. And lamb takes a lot of stuff up really quick. So we're going to cut our salt treatment. If you haven't heard this before, one inch of meat, one hour. Half inch of meat, 30 minutes. We're going to cut it by half. So we're going to coat it in not thin, not a fine salt. We want to do this with like kosher salt, thick salt, coarse salt. Cut both sides of our half inch piece of lamb in salt. Okay. 15 minutes. We're going to rinse it. We're going to hit it with our oil and our rub. We're going to grill it, and then we're going to finish it with more of that oil. Now, you've just taken a, a piece of meat that sells for about $3 a pound, and you've made something exceptional out of it. If we stretch that with, like, a, a side dish of vegetables and potatoes, we don't need that much of it if we're trying to keep costs down. But what we do get of it is fantastic rather than tough and gamey and what, what have you. And I can't believe I just said gamey because gamey is not a flavor. Gamey means you cooked it wrong. That's what gamey means. There's no such thing as gamey flavor. Um, 
let's start talking about some items that add flavor. So here's my list of things that I always want to make sure I have around to add flavor to things beyond the stuff we've talked about so far. Soy sauce. A lot of people are opposed to soy sauce. I use it in moderation. I don't worry about it. When I die of soy sauce poisoning, I'll let you know. I think that it's funny that some people are worried about soy sauce, and then they're going out and eat a huge, massive, processed food diet in America that's full of corn and soy. Uh, and then they don't want to eat soy sauce because there's too much salt in it. You can get low sodium if you want to, but soy sauce. Um, an alternative to soy sauce for that salty characteristic, and I actually like it to do other things, is fish sauce. So I always have soy sauce, fish sauce, Worcestershire sauce in my home. Here's some ones that you may not have heard of. Um, gochujang. Gochujang is fermented Korean chili paste. It packs a lot of flavor and a lot of spice. The fermentation and the chili together is really interesting. Um, it's something if you make kimchi, I think most people use some gochujang when they make kimchi. I don't like kimchi. I'm a big fan of a lot of fermented things. For some reason, I've just never gotten along with kimchi, but I like gochujang. Uh, another one is mirin. Mirin, M-I-R-I-N. That's basically rice wine, sake, that's been sweetened. I like to use mirin in base because it's got sugar and it gets that that kind of caramelization, that crunch, that b quick browning going to black if you let it go too long. And that's the main thing I use mirin for, though it's used in a lot of things with oriental cooking. Citrus, juice and zest. It amazes me how little citrus people use in their cooking when it, when it does so many amazing things. You want a cool thing to do the next time you make a pot of chicken soup? Take one Meyer lemon, cut it in half, Throw it in the soup when you're making the soup. Cook it down, remove it, and thank me later. It'll change the way you look at chicken soup for the rest of your life. But juice and zest. So in that case, you didn't, instead of zesting, you just threw the whole thing in there. Watch that stuff, by the way, even if it's organic. A lot of times there's waxes on them and things like that. Um, but citrus zest. Everybody should own a good zester. Uh, I'll have my recommended one. I got a show that I know is going to make the cut for next uh, next month. Uh, it called 20 Items for the Prepper Kitchen and How to Use Them." And a zester, a good zester. A zester is not a small cheese grater. It will take too much off. You want something that looks like a rasp, a long file. I'll try to backfill that in today's show notes as well. And you take these long drawing things. What people say to do with them is you set them down on the ground and then you move the fruit across them. I don't like to do that. I actually like to hold the fruit in one hand and like, just zest them with the other, and it all collects in this little channel in that zester. So if you're putting it into a jar to make a marinade, you just take your finger, and the backside of it won't cut your finger, by the way, and, and it goes. So you have control over where you put it. Citrus, zest, and juice. Prepared mustard, even if you hate mustard. Um, every time my wife sees me buy mustard or I'm cooking and I grab the mustard box, I don't like mustard. I'm like, well, you eat it all the time and you don't know it, so stop worrying about it. Um, Crab cakes, I make crab cakes all the time for her. She's like, what are you putting mustard in there for? Because that's what the recipe that everybody uses. There's two types of mustard in there, by the way. So I do like in your dry spices and stuff to have powdered mustard, mustard seed. Um, but for a lot of purposes, you want a prepared mustard, even like yellow mustard, brown mustard, you know, whole seed mustard, vinegar mixed up mustard because it's an emulsifier. So... Little chemistry lesson here. A lot of times you have issues where you're trying to make things go together into a sauce or a baste or a marinade, and they separate because oils, for instance, separate from other liquids. 
if we use an emulsifier and get a good mix, they'll bind. And your best emulsifiers that are readily available are eggs, dairy, which mostly would be milk or cream, and, and uh, mustard. And mustard's the easiest one. Mustard's the easiest one because we don't have to worry about whether it's cooked or anything. It's just mustard, right? It is its own preservative. It's mustard. So that emulsifying effect of mustard. And then mustard imparts a really great flavor to base and barbecue sauces and stuff like that. We don't need to use a lot of it. So we don't need to like take a barbecue sauce to a Carolina-style barbecue where it has, like, you can tell there's mustard in it for it to provide the emulsification for us. So mustard, definitely. Sugars. When I say sugars, I mean anything that's sweet. So mirin really would go in there, but it's not something people usually think of, so I listed it by itself. But white sugar, brown sugar, honey, agave, whatever. Any sugar has the ability to bring the sweet taste and, again, to create glazes and kind of that charring effect that is just so wonderful with food. And uh, brown, brown uh, sugar and honey are probably my two favorites to use regularly. And then bacon or pancetta, or prosciutto, or anything in that family, frying up little bits of that imparts a massive amount of flavor. It gives us a cooking oil. We separate it out, and we add them back into the dish at the end. So bacon can be kind of expensive, but if we're using you know two to four rashers to make an entire meal, and we're imparting flavor throughout the meal, and we're bringing these other great spices and seasonings and flavors in with them, you know that's great. I, I didn't really list... All of the, the typical like herbs and seasonings uh, that, that I have in my spice cabinet because it would just be this massive list. But just suffice to say, you want to have thyme, rosemary, parsley, oregano, basil. Uh, basil is one I love to use fresh, but it also I want to keep some dried around. I also like to keep around Mexican oregano, cumin, paprika, chili powder. I know I'm leaving some out, but those are like... Those are things that are right off the top of my head, and then add salt and pepper to that, that I just I can't see not having in my cabinet. But a fully equipped, you know, uh, spice rack, basically. And I don't like the little spice racks, by the way. And you know the ones that come with all the spices in them that just rip offs? You're better off going out and buying, um, you know, jelly jar size ball jars and labeling the lids and buying bulk spices and, and storing them in there. And what you can do is if you have a vacuum sealer, uh, you can do a bunch of them. Or if you want to keep your costs down, you buy your bulk spices, you put them in like a quart, and you seal that up. And when your little jar is empty, you open it up, dump it in there, and seal that jar back up. Um, it's less convenient, but it's less expensive as well. But make sure you have a full you know, assortment of that stuff. And don't buy the spice racks with all the crap already in them. Half of the stuff is stuff you'll never use. There's usually blends and mixes in there that are crap that are full of monosodium glutamate. You have no idea how long that thing has sat on the shelf. Since there's no expiration date on those things, they, they just could be there for five years for all you know. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. I should also add any kind of dried fruit is always an opportunity to add flavor. Nuts, toasted, things like that. Just get creative. Um, I want to talk a little bit about basting sauces, marinades, and brines, and what the differences are. So a basting sauce is something that we're going to use while we're cooking. Now, sometimes a marinade can double as that. We can make a marinade and then reserve some of it for basting or for finishing. But when I make a basting sauce, I almost always want to put a sugar in it. And a lot of times with a marinade, I'll put less sugar, because if I'm grilling a piece of meat, I don't want to get too much char early on if it's going to cook for a while. 
So I might make a marinade and then reserve some and add more honey to it for the, the, the basting. That's a simple trick there that I've, I've not really seen. I've never seen any of the TV cooks talk about that or anything. But that's a, so a baste. I, it, like here's a go-to base that I just used, and I put out the recipe for the spice rub for this. Uh, it's like a go-to spice rub for grilling chicken and pork. Uh, I made some up with some quail legs and quail breasts for my buddy David uh, this weekend. He thought it was fantastic, and uh, I'll pull it up and just give you the stuff right here off the top of my head. But if you want to see it, just look at the Amazon item of the day, and I have this laid out for you. You toss in about a tablespoon of each, but really that means equal amounts thyme. Dried garlic, dried onion, mustard seed, fennel seed, chili powder, dehydrated celery. That's not celery seed. That's dehydrated celery like that you would use to cook with, right? Dehydrated celery, celery, cumin, teal cherry, black peppercorns. That's another secret that the celery and the type of peppercorns are secrets to this. And then kosher or sea salt. All again, about a tablespoon of each. Then about three tablespoons of paprika and two tablespoons of dried parsley. You put that in your, your spice grinder, you grind that up, and then you, you throw your, your chicken, your pork, whatever it is you're cooking with this. This is really a great seasoning for your lighter meats. Probably be good on beef anyway, but really like pork and chicken and, in this case, quail. You just toss it in a bowl, so like a stainless steel bowl or a plastic bowl. You just toss it around to get it nicely coated, almost like you're coating it with like a frying mix. And then you grill that over high heat. Then you make up your basting sauce for this. So the basting sauce I made for this um, was made with some mirin. Again, that's the sweetened wine. Uh, some yellow mustard as an emulsifier. Some soy sauce. A dash, just a tiny, tiny dash of sesame oil. And uh, then some uh, jalapeno-infused olive oil. And... Uh, That was, and, and that was it. And then that was all blended together. And again, as a baste, I didn't like cook it with that. I cooked it with the, cooked the quail with the dried spices. And then right as I knew it was done and ready to come, just about ready to come off, brush it, flip it, let it start to caramelize, brush the other side, flip it, let it start to caramelize, bring it off the heat, brush it one more time on both sides, lid down about two minutes. Right, so we want to do that before the, you know, so the meat is not going to be overcooked in that extra two minutes. But that's just letting that glaze set, and that was fantastic. I mean, there's a picture of the little legs. Uh, David was just going, I'm still tasting it, like you know. And the, the the breasts, I did the same way, except with them, I cut little slits on both sides and popped in a piece of jalapeno on both sides of the breastbone. Right. So again, again, quail are good, but what would you rather eat? What I just described, or we just throw the quail on the grill with some salt, pepper, and garlic. And it's just the technique. And it's the order. Like, if I had just slathered that baste on the quail with the, the seasoning all together like a sticky mess, it would have burnt. It wouldn't have cooked right. You could have never cooked it at the high. Like, this was cooked over high heat, blazing charcoal, fast. Like little pieces of poultry you want to cook fast, not slow. Get it done, get it off. So to be able to do that and get that, that char on it, you had, to, you had to do it in the right sequence and right order. That's, that's what makes these meals fantastic, the technique. Now, marinades, there's millions of. And I'm not going to even go through a bunch today because the show is going to be long enough as it is today. But this is what you need for a marinade. You need an oil or a fat, right? You need an acid. So you might have an olive oil, 
uh, or even yeah, I've, I've done it with <laughs> with uh, with uh, melted bacon grease before. But the problem is that kind of sticks back together. So your oil, your your so just say olive oil, an acid uh, like vinegar or lemon juice, uh, some salt, something salty, um, which could just be salt. Or it could be something like fish sauce or soy sauce, right? Uh, something sweet. The simple thing is sugar or honey. And then some herbs, some sort of aromatics like onions and garlic. So if I want to just like not worry about any marinade I've ever made before in my life and just say, I want to make a marinade for chicken and I want it to be something I don't do all the time and I'm just going to pull it out of my ass right now this second. Okay, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to take some olive oil, some lime juice, and I'm going to zest the lime, put half of the zest of one lime and all the juice of one lime in with the oil. Okay, I'm going to add to that a, a bit of um, a fish sauce. No, I'm not going to do fish sauce on chicken, not unless it's wings. Uh, I'm going to add, I'm trying not to do salt, I'll add some soy sauce. Add some soy sauce to that. Uh, and I'll actually add... Let's say I'm going to add like a tablespoon of soy sauce and a pinch of sea salt because there are two different types of saltiness in there. For something sweet, I'm going to add, I'm going to pick up my, you know, my honey bear that you squeeze. I'm going to squeeze a dollop of honey in there. And then I'm going to add, see this is chicken, so that's going to go well with some dried thyme, a little bit of dried rosemary, a little bit of dried oregano, just little pinches, and then I'm going to grab a pinch of, um, of garlic, but I'm not going to use fresh garlic in this. I'm going to use the dehydrated minced garlic. I'll explain why I like that, and a pinch of, of the onion. I'm going to mix all that together, and I'm going to take my chicken, I'm going to put it in a Ziploc bag, and I'm going to dump that in there, half of it. I'm going to reserve half of it. The half that I reserve, I'll add a little bit of that mirin we talked about to and up the sugar content just a little bit. I'm going to wrap that chicken up, and I'm going to set it, and I'm going to let it marinate overnight in the refrigerator. Uh, that recipe comes from nowhere. It's just the components of a marinade. Got it? That's all there is to it. And now we're going to baste with a, with the reinforcement of that marinade with a little bit more sugar added to it. Real simple. Brining, people confuse with marinade. Um, but there's definite differences. With marinating, we're mainly concerned with flavor that we're infusing to the meat, and we're only going to get it so deep into the meat. It's not, it's not really going to like get through the whole thing. It can't penetrate that deep because of the way that it's made. Uh, and also a lot of people think that brines and marinades both tenderize meats. They don't. Your meat is going to come out to a tenderness based on its cooking method and the meat itself, like what type of cut it is and is it cooked properly. The only way you're going to get tenderization of meat with a marinade is if we actually included something that truly is a tenderizer, like uh, ground papaya or something like that, that uh, actually does tenderize meat. With a brine, we're more concerned about keeping meat juicy. That, that's the big thing with a brine. A basic brine we make with per gallon, we make a gallon of water, a half cup of salt, to two-thirds a cup of sugar. And there's other things we can add in there that can imbibe some flavors and things like like black pepper, corns and garlic and bay leaves and stuff like that. But your basic brine is just salt and sugar and water. And this is what happens. 
the salt actually has the ability to open up the pores of the meat. This is why salting a steak, which I'll go over again at the very end just to make sure that everybody understands that one. But if you ever do a salted steak, and you want to use thick steak when you do this, when you, get, when you wash the salt off, and it won't come out salty. You don't add any more salt to it after this, but it won't come out salty. But it has to be thick cuts of meat, and you have to follow the rules. You'll notice that the fibers are opened up. Well, when we encase it in water and we have that salty water, again, a half cup to the gallon, that same thing happens with our meats. They open up, and water's able to get in there. It gets into the meat. And as certain processes happen, basically things close in around the, the water, and the, basically the meat takes up water. So we are not going to brine a steak. We don't brine steaks. We brine things like whole chickens, and we brine things like whole turkeys, and we brine things like uh, cuts of, of, of pork or beef that we're going to smoke and slow cook. Right. So we, we would marinate something and then grill it. We are not going to brine something and then grill it, a high-heat grilling. And that's it. But now that you know that, I don't have to tell you, like, my marinades, my brines, my basting sauces. Now that you know what they're supposed to do, now you know that they exist. You know, now that you know how to apply them, when you're making something, you think, what would be a good basting sauce for this? Basting sauces for shrimp. And you're going to find, I guarantee you, you're going to find chili, garlic, ginger, and lime in a lot of them. So now you could probably make one. See? Just by understanding what flavors go well together and the technique. On that, I want to give you three great bases to build things on. The mirepoix, which is the French base for all the soups and stews and most things you make that are French-based cooking, is equal parts of celery, onion, and carrot sautéed until they come together and then they become part of what you're cooking. And, and those flavors can be reinforced so many ways. We can do, you know, it's not a mirepoix. When we build a bed of celery, onion, and carrot that we roast a chicken on top of, but it does the same thing, right? The Holy Trinity, that's as we, French cooking moved into Louisiana, Cajun, the Holy Trinity is celery, onion, and green pepper in equal parts. And then what I call easy Asian, I don't know if there's actually a word for this or not, but chili, garlic, ginger. You look at an Asian recipe that's good, And you'll almost always have those three things in it. Now, a lot of other things can go with these things. But just kind of get your head around these, this comb combination concept. Because there's a lot of other ones. Um, there is something called sofrito, which is a, a French, or I'm sorry, a Spanish base for cooking. And that's actually pretty simple to, uh, to, be, to be prepared. It's basically um, tomatoes and bell peppers sweet onions and garlic cooked together makes a sofrito and it's a great spanish base so if you're thinking i want not mexican but actual spanish then there's a base to work off of okay so if you know that then you know to go to that And a lot of these european countries they share palates so um italians have something called batuto And all we do is we basically make a mirepoix, onions, carrots, and celery, but we add parsley leaves, fresh parsley leaves, garlic, and fennel. Uh, and then this would be a great place to throw a little pancetta or prosciutto or even bacon if you don't have it into that. And that base is a great Italian base. Now, you're probably not going to make spaghetti marinara with that. But if you wanted to cook chicken and you wanted to get an Italian flair to it, there would be your base to work with.
And see, none of this is expensive. It's just knowledge. The knowledge is priceless. Because celery, carrots, and onions are cheap, folks. And the amount of, you know, even true pancetta that you need to do stuff like this is, is minuscule. A lot of the stuff we grow in our own backyards, or we have friends and family that grow it. You start cooking for them this way, they'll give you as much of it as you want. But if you just know that we have, that these things exist, so Frito, Spanish, Batuto, Batuto which I think I pronounced wrong because I don't know, but that's, uh, that's Italian, Mirepoix for French, Holy Trinity, and then the Easy Asian, right? The chili, the garlic, and the ginger. And, and it just really starts to, how much can we do now with something simple like chicken or pork? Just chicken and pork and all those things. And then all the other things we talked about today and figuring out what we want today. I mean, if you want to get stupid simple, get some Italian sausage and get some potatoes. Okay? Saute your Italian sausage. Uh, probably like 80% cooked till it's well rendering the fat out. So slice it up, cook it, take it out of the pan. All right? While you're doing that, some salt water going about two tablespoons of salt to about a gallon of water. Chop your potatoes up. Russets are best for this, just brown potatoes. Throw them in that water and bring it to a boil. Let it boil for a minute or two, kill the heat, drain your potatoes. They'll take the salt up. They'll be partially cooked. And something that I can't explain magically makes them crisp where they wouldn't if we didn't par-cook them. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take the potatoes, we're going to take some fresh garlic, And we're going to add the fresh garlic to the frying pan that the sausage grease is in. And we're going to fry the potatoes and the garlic a little bit. We're going to then put them into, if that pan's big enough and is oven safe, fine. If not, we're going to put it into a baking pan. We're going to add the sausage back to it. We're going to hit it with thyme and rosemary at that point. It goes beautifully with potatoes. We're going to bake it until the potatoes are soft. I, I mean, I can't make something more simple than that. It will blow you away. It will blow you away. And if you wanted to make something really special out of it, right, then all you got to do is make up a little pan of batuto, right, or batuto. I'm not sure how you say it. I'm not an Italian. I just know how to make the stuff. And then so you take your potatoes and your sausage are now in. So this is totally backwards, right, because usually we would make this as a base. But we're going to make our batuto, which is, you know, our celery, our onions, our fennel, right, Um, uh, what else is in there? Garlic, parsley, and and we're, now we're going to just like bring a little bit of tomato into it, right? So we're going to dice up some tomatoes and toss that in there because there's no rules here. Now, I might piss off an Italian if you tell him there's no rules for his cooking, but we're doing whatever we want. So we're going to cook those tomatoes into that a little bit. When those potatoes and sausages come out, we're going to serve them on a plate, and we're going to ladle that stuff on top of them. You, I mean, you can make that for $2 a person, or maybe less, depending on where you get your sausage and how much you pay for it. You can make your own Italian sausage, by the way. It doesn't have to be, um, you know, link sausage. You could use loose sausage and that basically roll little, like, like sausage meatballs to do that. That would be fantastic, by the way. I, I need to do that, right? I mean, th th this, is, this is how to think about structuring your meal. Big thing, guys, be fearless. If you screw one meal up, don't do that again. Do something different. I've got a bunch of ideas here for you at the end. Um, salted steak, I'm going to add into this. Salted steak is what it sounds like. Again, you need thick steak. 
usually use poor quality cuts of meat, like a London broil would be an example, or things like that, or a flat iron, but thick. Three quarters or uh, wider is what, really what I'm going to tell you. Uh, so if three quarters, 45 minutes, one inch, one hour, inch and a quarter piece of meat, one hour, 15 minutes. You coat both sides with coarse salt. You let it sit for the length of time that's required. You rinse it off with water. You wash all the salt off it. You let it dry. And then you season it with herbs, whatever, rub you want. No salt in that. You've salted it enough. But it will not be salty if you do what I just said. And then you cook that steak on the grill. Fantastic. And it was made for low-quality steaks. But I've started doing our ribeyes this way. And holy crap. Holy crap. And the way it chars and the way it cooks, it just changes everything. All right? Um, but again, no salt in your seasoning, your steak rub, if you've done a salted steak. Uh, one chicken, three meals. This is my favorite thing to do anymore. So remember that little technique I taught you with putting the seasoning underneath the skin of the chicken? We can do that with a whole chicken. So what we want to do is we're going to take our chicken. We either use a knife or a set of uh, kitchen shears. And I like to use shears for this. Cut the backbone out of the chicken. Just right. Remember, buy a whole chicken. We're not going to pay somebody to cut up a chicken. We don't need that. We take the backbone. What do we do with it? Put it in a Ziploc bag. Put it in the freezer. It's for making stock. Okay? Uh, so the tail usually comes with that. That's great. The tail has a lot of gelatin in it. And there's a lot of cartilage in that backbone and all. It'll cook down almost nothing, but all that, so that, that goes away for later. Okay. Now, we're going to take the chicken and we spread it out butterfly style. And then on the end, this is hard to explain on the air. You can just Google how to do, how to butterfly a chicken. Uh, we want to remove the keel bone, which is a little bone that's mostly cartilage. And we're going to cut that keel bone on the inside and just pull it out. That'll make the breast like perfectly flat. All right? Real, real simple. Take the keel bone, pretty useless, but a lot of, a lot of connective tissue, a lot of cartilage into the stock bag goes in the freezer. We're done with the stock bag for now. Also into the stock bag, if the chicken was whole, it probably came with a heart and liver, a heart and liver in the stock bag. Though it's hard for me to do because the frying the heart up is great, but frying one heart is usually not worth it. So, now we take our chicken and we use our fingers and we loosen the skin on the breast and the thighs. Now we're going to make up a rub to go in there. How about this? We do parsley, lemon zest, black pepper, salt, garlic. That's it. And we shove it all underneath the skin. So there's a little bit everywhere, all the way down the legs, on the thighs, everywhere. And then we lay it flat down on a bed of celery, carrots, and onions. Okay? I want you to start thinking in advance here how this is all going to work. And we put that chicken down, and we either bake it, for whatever length of time your oven and your, you know, you need to get your chicken to proper temperature and total doneness. Or, if we want it to be really good, we broil it. And if we're going to broil it, we're probably turning this thing like, because a broiler is basically an indoor grill. Especially if you have a gas broiler. This is beautiful to do with a gas broiler. Or we can cook that chicken on the, on the grill. Either way. We cook that whole chicken. I'm, I'm assuming this is for a meal for two people. If you had two, you know, four or six people, maybe you make a really big chicken or you make two chickens to get the same result out of this. We serve that night the breasts, right? We serve the breasts. The breasts will come out beautifully this way, and of all the parts of the chicken, it's the worst keeper. 
So we're going to just debone the two breast cutlets, and we're going to serve that. That's our meat for tonight. Remember, you want to eat good, cheap. All right. Now, you can buy a chicken for five bucks. I know that's a mass-produced chicken, but, again, you can either eat chicken or nothing. So it depends on, and you do this with, it doesn't matter the quality of the chicken, the technique stays the same. Now, you're probably not going to eat this big pile of carrots and celery and onion. Because they're not even going to be, the chicken will actually cook faster than the vegetables. The vegetables have made this beautiful little nest. Okay? We're going to take the vegetables, and we're going to cut them up, and all of the drippings that are down there, we're going to put in the bag with the leftover pieces of chicken for the stock. Got it? It's already done, and it's wonderfully flavored. When we make this chicken, we're probably going to hit it with, like, thyme, and rosemary, and oregano, salt, pepper, and garlic on the outside, and that's all going to also cook down. So we've got the outside of the skin and the inside of the skin flavored, and all that's going down in those vegetables and all those wonderful juices. The next day, we're gonna, and we're gonna, when we take the breast off the chicken, we just leave the chicken whole, put it in the refrigerator covered. So it's still got basically the wings and the legs. The next day, we're either going to take the leg quarters off, warm them up and eat them, Or we're going to pull most of the meat off of them and make something like um, a chicken spaghetti that doesn't have to have, not, don't put tomato sauce on that. Do something, like I said, pull that meat, get enough of it off of there. Don't try to get every tiny bit of it off because what's coming next, chop it up, make up a, a pot of pasta like angel hair, a little reserved chicken stock from something else, okay? Uh, some greens, sweet potato greens. Beautiful sweet potato greens. So do what I said before. So we boil our spaghetti, we pull it out, we get our, our, our stock nice and hot. We add our chicken, we add some tomatoes, we add our sweet potato greens. We ladle hot, screaming hot chicken broth over top of those. We wilt the greens, we put the spaghetti back in, we toss that. We have that tonight. Or we make chicken enchiladas or chicken casserole or just eat the leg quarters as a dish with something as a side, a big salad. Or... Pull the chicken off. It's wonderfully flavored, wonderfully cooked. Make a great big green salad. Put chicken on it. You can do whatever you want with that second day. Now you've got this chicken carcass. It's got the wings. It's got little bits of meat left on the breast and the thighs and everything else. And we know what we're going to do. We're going to get that bag out of the freezer. We're going to get a big stock pot going. We're going to put water in and throw the chicken in there. We're going to throw all the stuff in the bag in there. And we're going to make a chicken stock. We're going to pull all of the chicken stuff out, pick all the bones off, and the best way to do this is get a great big piece of cheesecloth, shove all the chicken stuff in there. The vegetables you can leave go because you're going to eat them. And then when you go to pull your chicken out, you just pull your cheesecloth out. Yeah? And then that way all the little bones and stuff aren't all gone. Or another way I've done this is you get a great big steel colander. You put the meat in that you, it, so that it nests into your stock pot, put your lid on it, and cook that until you've cooked it to where it falls off the bones. Then add, because you probably don't have enough, or maybe you do, you can leave it if you want to, but you can add a little bit more celery and carrots, maybe some fresh garlic, and a can of tomatoes, or some fresh tomatoes. But I like to use canned tomatoes here because they're peeled, and when you make tomatoes into, like you throw them into a soup, the skins get kind of funky. So just a can of crushed tomatoes, Italian style, bloop, into that. And we toss in a Meyer lemon, or if we don't have a Meyer lemon, just a lemon. We probably don't need to, though, because there's so much lemon from the rub that we put underneath the chicken skin. We've made three meals out of one chicken. Even if we're buying a $16 pastured chicken, if two people can eat three meals like that, 
for a total of about, let's say, 25 bucks, that's not bad. That's not ramen noodle level of, of cheap, but that's not bad. Fish soup or chowder, or what I call poor man's bouillabaisse. Okay, we make a fish stock. I'm not going to go through all that again. We're going to then to that fish stock, take a small can of tomato paste, and we're going to add the tomato paste. We're going to tomato this thing up. We're going to add celery and carrots and garlic and some chili peppers. I like to use, like, for a pretty good-sized pot, like a standard stock pot size, like a, like a standard soup pot size, not a big tall one, but, like, you know, something you're going to make this with. Um, about two jalapenos. And I basically take the bottom half and I leave the seeds and pith in the top half where there's really a ton of seeds. I take the shoulders off of that. But you can make this whatever temperature you want. You can use any um, chili peppers you want. And then we're going to take a nice, firm, white fish like halibut. And we don't need a lot because we've got so much vegetables and all this other action going on. We're going to slice that up. And you might want to try two types of fish for like this. Like... In France, there's all these like trash fish that are expensive as hell now and impossible to get, and there's like bouillabaisse is like this like like special thing. Here we're just making a fish soup, so you can use freshwater fish, you can use catfish in this, you can use anything. Um, but what's really nice to do is add some sort of uh, crustacean or uh, bivalve. Like, do you know you can get a big giant bag of green lip mussels, okay, or similar, just mussels for about five bucks at most grocery stores. Five bucks, big bag. Right, you just throw a whole bag in there. We'll take them out of the bag, rinse them off, and throw them in there with some fish and then some shrimp. And I know you're thinking it's got to be cheap, but, okay, how many shrimp do we need? We're talking about shrimp, you know, like the uh, the stuff that's like uh, the medium size, like it's like, what, 30, 30 count to a pound, about 30 of them to a pound. So we throw maybe half a pound in there, so four bucks worth of shrimp. And so we throw that all right in at the end just till it poaches through. And the order that it cooks, so probably the fish first, the, shri the shrimp first, the fish second, and then your mussels last and let the mussels pop open. And then they're going to spill all that wonderful liquor into that. We're going to mix that through, serve that with a piece of toast with a little, like, roasted red pepper on top of it. Red, red like You make, like, a red pepper and garlic spread. Oh, how do you do that? Okay, you either buy pre-roasted red peppers Or you take a red pepper, you put it on the grill till it's charred all sides, you wrap it in a piece of plastic. You leave it sitting there till it cools down, the skin separates. When you take it out, all the skin comes right off. So then you, you, you de-seed it, and you chop it up, right? You take a fresh clove of garlic, you mash it, chop it up, and you mix it together with a little olive oil. And if you wanted to really kind of like give it something special, just a sprinkle of Parmesan cheese in that. And then put that on. Yes, you can make that by itself. Okay? You see, this is not difficult. How about the, the, the simple, cheap, easy shrimp stir-fry? Because now we've bought a pound of shrimp, and we have half the shrimp left over. So here's how we're going to make this. We are going to make a vegetable mix to go with our stir-fry. You can do noodles or rice if that's you, and you can figure out how to do noodles and rice. But what I like to use with this is green peppers, uh, snow pod peas, Uh, carrot, and like daikon radish and cabbage. You shred all that up, and you start with a base. You use some oil, chili, ginger, garlic, lime. Okay? <laughs> that goes in. The vegetables go in. You start sautéing the vegetables. Then you throw your shrimp in, and that, that, that 
what you actually want to do is that chili, ginger, garlic, and lime, um, you, you have a little bit of that set aside, okay, lime juice. So you use like half the lime, chili, ginger, and garlic. When the shrimp go in, sprinkle some fresh on and hit them with the lime juice, fresh lime juice from the other half of the lime. A little bit of soy sauce, stir fry that till it's nicely done. Okay, that's that's it. Salt, pepper. That's I mean, that, there's there's really not much more you need than that. You could add, you know, um, a little onion with that or something. If you want to, some spring onions are great. But what you do is right at the end, you take your snow pea pods and you put them on the top. You take it off the heat and you cover, you usually walk for this most of the time, and you let them just warm through. Otherwise, they get really soft. And then they kind of bang with that. Now, you want to, like, make it even better. Chop up some cashews. Throw some cashews in there. Again, cashews aren't cheap, but how much do you need? to kind of bring that out. So that's another thing you can do. Um, how about, how about you know, you want to eat your greens and like them? <laughs> okay. Um, I've done this with sweet potato greens, and my wife was like, I'm not going to like those. And I, I made them, and she's like, those are fantastic. I did the exact same thing with Swiss chard. She's always like, I don't know why you grow Swiss chard. Here, eat this. Well, that's fantastic. So all you do is you, you, you chop up some bacon, uh, probably about four rashers if you have thick rashers of bacon. And by the way, a cheap source of bacon, not the best quality, but they have pre-cooked bacon at Costco in these big packages. So about one tier of that, and if you ever buy it, you'll know what I mean. Uh, but about you know four thick rashers of bacon, sliced up into small pieces. And then we take an apple, and we peel and core the apple, feed that stuff to the worms or the chickens, and we dice the apple up. Okay? <laughs> so simple. Uh, we put a little bit of oil in the bottom of our pan, and we throw our bacon in there. I like to use a little bit of oil with bacon. I know they say you don't need it, but it usually kind of gets things going to the party faster. So we, we, we take the bacon, and we cook it till it's released its fat, and it's starting to crisp up. We throw the apples in. We do that for just about a minute, right? And then we take our greens, and we throw them, and we just wilt our greens, and we get it out of there before we overcook our greens. A little salt, pepper on top of it, and we're done. Cheap, fast, quick, different. And those of you that grow sweet potatoes like I do, I mean, you can cut some greens two or three times a week from your sweet potatoes. Not that that's the expensive part of the dish, but it's always there. And this is a quick, easy way to make it. You know, an apple and a few pieces of bacon. That's an amazing side dish. It's also quite paleo, even with the, the apple. Okay. One of the cheapest cuts of chicken are wings. And... I say what? Buy whole. Now, if I want to make wings, though, I mean, I'd have to save a lot of chicken wings that were probably going to be made in the soup anyway to have chicken wings. So I don't buy a whole chicken to make wings, but I buy whole wings. So then you take your chicken wing and you lay it on a cutting board and you kind of push it down so the, the wing tip's kind of pointing up and it stretches out. And then you just cut the wingtip off, and then you flip it over, and then you cut the drumette from the second joint of the wing. Now you have your wings that you're going to cook. What do you do with all the wingtips? Put them in a bag in the, in the freezer for when you're going to make stock. Right? This is why we don't buy them pre-cut. What are we going to pay extra to have somebody cut them for and take away a piece that makes... Because what's in that wingtip? Why is it not useful to eat? Because it's like all collagen and connective tissue and cartilage, which is what makes great stock. So we take all the wing tips, we throw them to the side, and if we're feeling really generous, maybe we boil them up right away and we pour them over the dog's food to be nice to the dogs, but I generally save them for stock. 
Now I'm going to tell you how to make crispy chicken wings in your oven. You're going to steam them first. You're going to steam them. This is one I picked up from Alton Brown. This is going to let us cook them at a really high temperature in the oven without having flat splattering around and smoke and burning and all kinds of horrible things. So we're going to steam them. You can either use a steaming rack in a pot or you can use, I have a little electric steamer. You just push a button. Now I'll tell you what these push button electric steamers, they have times on them and stuff. What I do is I just turn them on. And then when they, when they, when they start actually steaming, then I, then I up the time to the time I want. So you steam them for 10 minutes. This is going to render a lot of the fat out of them. And when they're done with that, we're going to take them and we're going to set them aside in the refrigerator on a single layer and let them relax, cool down, and dry. Uh, once we're done with that, we're going to put them on a baking pan. Basically, the best way to do wings is you want a pan that has, like, a thing for the wings to drip through. So that has, like, a little grill in it, and it, it's like kind of like a broiler pan, but you should know what I'm talking about. You have a, a baking pan, and then there's a little grill-looking thing that sits in there, like a drying rack, and the wings sit up on top of that so they don't sit in their own juices. And we're going to put that in an oven at 425 degrees. This is why we've steamed them first. And, again, I got this one from Alton Brown. And we're going to cook them for 20 minutes on one side. We're going to open the oven, pull them out right on the drawer so it doesn't take long. We're going to flip them all. We're going to put them back in for 20 to 30 minutes more, depending on how big they are, how long they take to cook. And then you can do an Asian sauce. You can do a Parmesan garlic. You could do buffalo. You can do whatever you want with them, but they're going to be crispy. And there's no other way to do them in the oven and really get them crispy like that. I'll tell you another little trick that I've done with them. So you steam them, and then you get a little bit of panko breadcrumbs. And you, 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 you either get finely ground panko or you throw regular panko into like your, your blender or your little spice grinder. You pulse it, you make a finely grinded panko. And then you take a little bit of salt and pepper and mix it in with that. And you take your wings that have been steamed and you just dust them. You flip them and dust them again. And then they have a super crunch. And they hold just a little bit of that panko, but it's just enough that whatever sauce you put on them, it like sucks it up and it holds it on there. So you want to make buffalo wing sauce. You know, you got to go to the store and buy special wing sauce. Um, no, 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 no. Um, basically, all buffalo wing sauce is is chili sauce and butter. Remember, margarine is not butter. Margarine is not food for, food for human beings. Margarine does not belong in your home. Repeat after me. Hold your right hand up, you know, like you're, you're, you're making a, an oath to God. And say, margarine is not human food, margarine is not butter, and margarine does not belong in my home. So help me, Jack Spirgo, in the Survival Podcast community. Make that commitment. So we're going to melt butter and hot sauce and combine them together. And I find about equal amounts works for me. How much heat, how much do you want? By the way, Frank's Red Hot Sauce, which isn't that hot, probably makes the closest thing to the taste and flavor of a good restaurant buffalo wing you'll find mixed at about half and half butter to hot sauce. And you can be whatever ratio you want. And a little bit of salt in with that is great. And you can kick it up a little bit with some fresh garlic. And you can make your buffalo wings for a lot less than you can buy them for, even when they do Wing Street Wednesdays or whatever the hell they call it now. How about easy pork shoulder, right? you got to get your smoker out, and you got to do this, you got to do that. Okay, you, you don't really 
have to do all of that. If you want smoke flavor, you can use indirect heat on your grill and smoke a pork shoulder for about an hour to an hour and a half and do everything else in your oven. However, if you want to make a pork shoulder in your oven, you can do that and it will come out just fine. The best sauce for pork shoulder is onions and the juice that comes out of the pork shoulder. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. If we really want to do this right, we're going to mix up a brine. Two-thirds of a cup of sugar, half a cup of salt, and we're going to do that to the gallon of water necessary to immerse the pork shoulder. We're going to brine the pork shoulder overnight in the refrigerator with that. Some black peppercorns and some bay leaves would be a nice addition to your brine. We're going to pull the pork shoulder out, and we are going to pat it dry, and we're going to put it back in the refrigerator uncovered, and we're going to let it get kind of tacky. It'll get kind of tacky and sticky. We're going to make up whatever rub it is that we most want for our pork shoulder, but we could do a hell of a lot worse than what? Salt, pepper, garlic, onion, paprika, chili powder. Pretty good. Do some other things there, but that would work really, really well. A little bit of cumin, uh, and even a little bit of fennel would work here, just a little bit. We're going to throw that in our spice grinder, and we're going to roll that all and rub that all over our pork shoulder. We're going to set the meat in a roasting pan, okay? And we're going to roast it for about 20 minutes, and we're going to like turn it a couple times until we kind of get a sear on it. I'm sorry, don't do this with a roasting pan. You're going to get a um, like a big cast iron skillet, and we're going to sear it. Just sear it on all sides. Kill the heat. Take your roasting pan, chop up two or three, as much as you need to cover the bottom of the roasting pan, big yellow or white onions, either or, not purple. But white or yellow is fine for this. Slice them thin like big discs and cover the pan. Add a little bit of water and a little bit of oil when you do that, the salt and pepper on the onions. That's all we need. All the rest of the flavor comes from the pork. But the salt will start pulling the moisture out of the onions. What we want to do is we want to get enough moisture down there for the onions not to scorch until there's enough time for fat to begin rendering from the pork. So the water and a little bit of oil, the salt and pepper will help with that. We set that on there and we put it in our oven at 325 degrees. And we are going to cook it like that for about an hour uh, uncovered. And then we're going to take it out, and we're going to we're going to cover it completely with aluminum foil, the whole pan, and we're going to put it back in, and we're going to cook it for probably about another three hours, at 325 degrees, no hotter than that. We want to get the temperature inside of it up to about 185 degrees, but we want to take a long time to get there. And that will come out, that will slice, that will shred, that will be anything. And there will be people, especially if you use enough paprika in it, that will swear you smoked it. Now, it won't be the same as when it was really smoked. Now, how do I do this when I actually make a smoked one? I brine it, I rub it, I put it in the smoker. I smoke it for about an hour to an hour and a half, that's it. Then I put it on a bed of onions in the oven and I cook it till it falls apart. And it's fantastic. Now, that's a lot of meat, but a pork shoulder is very inexpensive, especially if you go ahead and buy mass market meat. This is the one place I tend to actually buy meat from the mass market because it's been very difficult for me to find pork shoulders, uh, find pork shoulders from pastured pork and things like that, uh, and the, the big giant pork shoulders. So I've been willing to do that. What I've actually found though is I have a local butcher uh, that I take my birds to get processed, 
And it's not really like pastured pork, but it's locally produced, not mass market pork that he has. And he has shoulders and bellies and all that. So there is a middle ground sometimes. And that's actually, it's been very affordable. My only complaint with his pork is if I get ground pork for him, it's terrible for sausage. Whatever he's grinding, there's like no fat in it. So that's the one thing I can't get from his, his ground pork. And I've t tried to talk to him about that, and it just didn't really go anywhere. So I don't get ground pork from him, but... All my other pork cuts I've been getting from him, and that's worked out really well, and I'm actually paying less than the store. So I hope this kind of gives you a ton of ideas. And I know you're probably hungry, and I know this was a long show, but, I mean, to me, this is one of the greatest life skills that we can have. And if we don't have this, you know, then we that's when we end up spending a lot of money on our food, or we eat crappy food. And we can actually spend less and eat really high-quality food. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'll have a whole bunch of stuff that I'll add, uh, seasoned spicings, recommendations, gadgets, gizmos, you name it, to the show notes, but I'll probably be tomorrow or maybe by the end of the week before I get them added. So you want to bookmark this one if you want to know all that stuff and come back to it. Or maybe I'll do a standalone blog post within it or something because I just don't have time to do it today. I have got an hour and 20 minutes before i got to be doing this webinar today on ducks and duck management for Permaethos. So, with that wrapped up, remember you can support the show by joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get a lot of great stuff, free information, uh, some video products, stuff like that, $200 worth of free ebooks, discounts on over 60 different vendors, uh, saves you money, the membership pays for itself. And again, you just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you qualify for a discount. Uh, if you want to join the Members Brigade and get a discount, all you have to do is email me with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Send that to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. And when you do that, tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll get back to you with your discount. The other way to support this show in the easiest way and, and, and the way you should, if you shop on Amazon and you listen to the show and you like it, I, I think you should support us because it's so, it's so easy. It takes, and it costs you nothing. You just go to tspaz, tspaz.com. And when you get to Amazon, you just search for whatever you're looking for, buy it, and we get credit for the sale. Amazon gets advertising on the show. We earn income, and you get to help support the content that you love, like the incredible information I gave you today. I feel like I really hit this one out of the park, guys. I really do. I feel like if you if you take two or three things from this and start adding them to your cooking, you will be grateful for a long time. I know this is stuff I've learned. I'm in my 40s, and I've been cooking since I was a little kid, and I've learned this stuff over my entire life, and it's made me a lot happier of a person to be able to cook really good food. You'll find if you ever come here, I'm probably going in to visit. I'm probably going to cook for you. But, yeah, you can support this show by going to tspaz.com. That's all you got to do today. You'll see that coffee grinder that I use for all my spice grinding. I've had that thing forever. I have a post out about it. I have the, my, my go-to rub for chicken and pork uh, listed in that post, and uh, you can get that for, like, 17 bucks. If you don't want it, like I said, if you're just shopping on Amazon, just search for whatever you're going to shop for anyway. And, guys, you type one less letter in to get the tspaz than you do to get to Amazon. So it really is actually less work to help support this show. With that, I want to go into today's uh, ending song. It is by Jamie Johnson, yet again. Uh, I played In Color for You by Jamie yesterday. Jamie, I feel like, is the new face of Outlaw Country. Uh, this is a guy that I think I think he was able to call Merle Haggard a friend, and there's not a lot of people like that out there. Um, really, really great song, and I think this one, there's actually a song that was put out by The Highwaymen, 
which was a super group, a country super group, Chris Christopherson and uh, just just great guys, um, you know, Johnny Cash, and you just look up the Highwaymen if you've if you've never heard of them, uh, called the the Last Cowboy Song, and I think some of this is a little bit of like a throwback to that song, you know, I think there, I can hear some of the same themes in it. But, you know, he talks about, like, at the beginning, like, like if you have a, a, an old pickup truck, it, it must mean you're on hired times now. Like, when, when I was a kid, like, it was cool to own an old pickup truck. Everybody wanted to own an old, own an old pickup truck. And I, I got an old pickup truck out there. I love my noisy, diesel, old, beat-up pickup truck. And it's a little bit more beat-up than it needs to be because my wife hit the fence with it one time. But uh, I don't really care. It kind of gives a character. I kind of like it. People get out of the way. They're, you know, I'm not afraid to hit them. And uh, but but it's just the concept that all of the things that made this country and made our culture something really special, the fact that we valued hard work and we kept things a long time, and instead of just seeing it like an old truck, well you don't have the money for a new truck, it was well you know how to keep something running. The cowboy attitude, cowboy logic, it's dying, you know, and it doesn't have to. And it don't have to be cowboy either. It's just cowboys are one group of people, country boys are one group of people that have always been this way. But this is the same attitude that I, that I grew up with in the mountains of Pennsylvania. And trust me, those people are not cowboys. You know, they're Appalachian hillbillies maybe, but they're, they're, they're not. They're not really hillbillies either. That's more of a southern thing. I don't know what the hell you'd call them. Some of the people up there call themselves rednecks, but they ain't never been in the South, and they don't know what a redneck is, you know. Um, but but that's the attitude that we can get by, that we can do a lot with a little. Just like today, we talked about how many amazing things you can do just with some knowledge and some techniques. I mean, what the cat, what you know, makes cowboys successful isn't the fact they have a rope. I can give any dumbass a rope. That doesn't mean he can rope a steer with it. It's knowledge. So listen to this song and, and realize there is a lot of that tradition. And again, not just cowboy tradition, but this tr traditional value slipping away. But remember, it doesn't have to. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. And this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
They changed all the words and the cowgirls, they all sang along. But tell me who's gone ride them away when the last cowboy's gone. Terrible.